Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for all the praises that we have this morning. I thank you so much for all the blessings that you give to us. Lord, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray that you will open our ears and open our hearts so that we can hear the message that you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, well, we are continuing our sermon series this morning in the book of Acts called Jesus' Mission Continues. And this is a look at disciple-making disciple in the early church. And we want to know what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to be going through all of Acts 27, and we're sailing for Rome. Well, Paul and Luke are sailing for Rome, and we're going to join them on their journey. Um, this morning, what we see, I've got my wrong notes pulled up. Um, 11, 4, let's see. Uh, well, this morning, we're going to see that God is sovereign. All right, so God is sovereign. We see that God is in control, and that means that he has the right and power to make events happen to accomplish his will. We also see that God gives us strength to weather the storms, and we will see details in this story and how they point to the historicity of Acts. Now, historicity basically means the truthfulness in the historical account in it. All right. So we see the details in here pointing to that historicity. All right. Well, to give a little recap, Paul was in Jerusalem and he was arrested for uh, being in the temple. He was, well, he was arrested because the Jews didn't like the ministry that he was doing. And while he was in the temple, he was arrested. And he had gone through several trials now over the past two years. And these different trials have gone basically nowhere. And the trials have been mishandled and the Jews are still trying to kill Paul. And so Paul says... Well, I, um, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. I think the main reason, though, we find in Acts 23, 11, Jesus tells Paul, he says, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. And so Paul is using that to guide him, to, to help him to make his decisions. And so he says, I appeal to Caesar so that he can utilize the systems in the Roman government to get him to Rome, to follow out his calling from Jesus. I've said before that I don't really like to read large chunks of text. Well, this morning, I'm going to read the whole chapter, all 44 verses. Yep. And I'm not even going to break it up um, because there are so many details packed in here that I don't want us to miss any of them. And I might stop a couple times along the way, but for the most part, it's going to be one big chunk. And then we'll come back afterwards and go through our and see these points again. So starting there in verse one. It says, when it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra of Lys Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived off Gnidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete off Salome. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Continuing in verse 9, it says, By now much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous, since the Day of Atonement was already over. And that seems like a weird detail in there, but this means that it's about September or October, and it's the end of the shipping season. 
Now, the reason it was because the reason that was the end of the shipping season was because the Mediterranean Sea became very stormy in the fall and winter, late fall and into the winter. And so they didn't do a whole lot of shipping during that time. Uh, Continuing, it says, Paul gave his advice and told them, men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, facing the southwest and northwest to winter there. When a gentle wind, or when a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete, but before long, a fierce wind called a northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Kauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Now the Sirtis were, it was a group of sand dunes, off, not sand dunes, uh, sandbars off the northern coast of Africa. And so they were sailing for Italy, sailing for Rome, but this northeastern wind came and pushed them all the way down to the northern coast of Africa. They were pushed all, that far out of their way. Uh, continuing in verse 18, maybe, there we go. Be, um, because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they, sh- they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was, finally all fo- all hope was fading that we would be saved. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to set sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night an angel of the, Lord, of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar." And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. When the 14th night came, we were, adrifting, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea. And about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little further and, su- and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. So the sea is now getting... Uh, shallower very quickly. Then, fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. Sorry, uh, continuing on, I'm going to 33, sorry. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you, have been without fo- um, that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. They all were encouraged and took food for themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. 
<clears throat> when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a, a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that had held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves." Now, in the original language here, the pounding of the waves means a convergence of two streams or two um, flows. And so this is where they had two different um, currents coming together, and it, was, it would break up a ship pretty easily. I'm going to finish out the chapter now. In 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them could swim away and escape. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. And so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to follow on some planks and some debris from the ship. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage is that God is in control. Now, it might not quite seem like it at first, but we see that God is in control. Um, the first way it shows us is that, uh, th this, uh, sorry, he's... He's in control in two ways. He's control over the Roman government, and he's in control over the lives of those in the boat. Uh, God uses the Roman government's appeal system to take Paul to Rome. This goes back to the verse that I mentioned earlier in Acts 23, verse 11, where Jesus tells Paul that he will testify in Rome uh, about Jesus. And if you look, if, if, you, if you were to think about it, Paul escapes death several times throughout his ministry, but it seems to be even more frequent after this message from Jesus. There's even another time in the next chapter where Paul is almost killed and he escapes death before he's able to fulfill his calling to Rome. Um, so God uses the systems put in place to get Paul safely from Jerusalem to Rome. Now Paul's letter to the Romans tells us that God puts the government in place to tend to his purposes and, uh, and their authority comes from God. And this is in Romans 13, in verse 1, he says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Again, this shows us two points that are, that are important here. It's that the government gets its authority from God, and that the government is instituted by God. That means it's put there by Him. Now, this truth carries over into our current context. Now, we know that our government's not perfect, but the ultimate purpose of the government is to act as a representative for God and to carry out His will. Now, we know our government's not perfect, I just said that, but there are other governments around the world who are even more imperfect than ours. But yes, this truth still remains true, that God had placed that government there to act as his, uh, to, to reflect his character. So if God is sovereign over the governments, then why are some, or we might think why are many, or maybe even why are most of them so bad or corrupt? Well, to fully answer that question, I would need more than just a little sub-point within a sermon. It would take a whole class to really answer that question. But to make it short, is that God gives us free will, and we as people are sinful, and we do not always follow, his, we do not always follow God's will. By the way, that answer is also why the church, why the body of Christ does not always reflect Christ's character. So God uses these systems that he has put in place to get Paul from Jerusalem to Rome safely. And you wait, say, whoa, whoa, safely? What about all this horrible weather? Well, that brings us to the next point, is that God is in control over the lives of those in the boat. Yes, there is bad weather. It is very bad weather. But God protects those in the boat. This is common for the Mediterranean during the season, but this storm is very strong. 
especially considering how early in the season it is. You could think of it almost like a, a category four or five hurricane in the middle of July. Now, technically, July is hurricane season, but we don't typically get one that strong that early. The likelihood of such a strong storm is pretty low. So we know, we also know that Jesus had a similar circumstance. And this is in Matthew 8, in 23 to 27. Um, it says, uh, as he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. Now, there are a lot of similarities in this passage and the passage with Paul. Um, but there are some, uh, so the similarities, well, we've got a bunch of guys in a boat, and there's a storm. And the storm is bad enough that the people on the boat think they're going to die. Now, we have a few differences as well. Right? So Paul's boat is bigger. There are more people on Paul's boat, and this storm has lasted much longer than the storm that Jesus was in. But that's not the biggest difference of them all. The biggest difference we, we see, if we keep reading in Matthew 8, and 26 and 27, Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and sea obey him. You see, the big difference is that Jesus is God. And Jesus has the authority to command the wind and the waves to stop. Paul is not God, and he doesn't have that authority. But Paul does serve the God who does have that authority. So why doesn't Paul worry about the storm? Even though he's not God, Paul's faith is from God. And God told him that he's going to be a witness in Rome. Paul is not God, but he serves the God who has that authority. Paul knows that God has given him a calling, and that is his only concern. Any other concern is just a distraction. So he doesn't concern himself with the storm. He's only concerned with getting to Rome and being that witness. He doesn't concern, concern himself with anything other than being obedient to his master. Now, there are times where we might want to change things in our life that we have no control over. Instead, we need to be like Paul and remember that our faith comes from God. And he has the one. He is the only one who can control these things. And he has given us a mission to do, and that is to make disciples. Now, our next point is that God gives strength to weather the storms. Paul speaks with authority several times in this chapter. Though he's in no position to speak with authority, he's a prisoner. And uh, so we ask the question, maybe, why do people look to Paul as a person of authority? Well, if we're being completely honest, first, we have to recognize that at first, they don't listen to Paul. In verses 10 and 11, they ignore his warning. But as this chapter continues, we get to see how Paul is able to maintain his cool and his calm, and they start to respect him, and they start to follow his advice, which just so happens to be that he's getting that advice straight from God. So the next question we have to ask is, why can Paul maintain that calm? Why is he able to remain calm even though the storm is literally tearing the boat apart? Well, this is because Paul recognizes the truth that we just talked about. He recognizes that God is in control, and God has told Paul that he will get to Rome, that he will protect the lives of those people on the boat. His only concern is obeying God. He's not concerned with the storm. Paul doesn't let the storm distract him from his calling. And when we realize our place, and when we realize God's goodness, it allows us to focus on what he has called us to do. It allows us to focus on being obedient. And it doesn't distract us from our calling. And our final point is that the details in this story 
point to the historicity of Acts. Now, again, historicity, basically, it's a word that means the historical truthfulness of the story. Um, I'm going to bring in a couple of other examples. Um, I used to read a lot of James Patterson books, the Alex Cross series. Um, those books, made a, they, made into, uh, they were made into a couple of movies. Um, in one of the books, though, uh, James Patterson writes about a motorcycle trip that Alex Cross takes with his girlfriend. Um, now, he's a, a DC, uh, a Washington, D.C. detective, but him and his girlfriend, they hop on a motorcycle and they ride down I-95, and it talks about them riding into North Carolina and riding into a town called Lumberton and taking an exit in Lumberton and riding a couple miles and then stopping at a campground next to a lake, or next to a river. And I'm like, wait a second, I know exactly what he's talking about. And all the little details that James Patterson was able to put into the story, I was able to say, well, doggone it, he's been there. I've been there too, and he's been there. The only way that he would know the details of that spot was if he was actually there. Now, many of you might not read the James Patterson books. Nicholas Sparks might be more your speed, but <laughs> what do all those books have in common other than the, the cheesy love stories? Is that they're set in coastal North Carolina. Why? Well, that's because that's uh, uh, Nicholas Sparks' home. If you read his books, I, I haven't read them, but I have heard that you can tell that he's done his research and he's actually gone to the places that he writes about in his books. Well, like I said, this is his home. Co well, coastal North Carolina is his home. And so to write about those places, he, he's writing about his home. And when you read the details, you know that he's been there. Similarly, it's not exactly the same because those stories are written as fiction, but with the details, you know the author has been there. Similarly, this story, it's not written as fiction, it's written as historical truth. But we can look back at the details in this story and know that Luke, the author, was actually there. We can know that he, had, he has gone through these struggles and he had been to these different places that he writes about. Um, this uh, brings up another, um, sorry, another point. It's about apologetics. So apologetics is not it's not apologizing for being a Christian. Apologetics is offering a defense for the faith. There are different ways to do apologetics, but one, uh, sorry, different ways to do apologetics. But one of those is to talk about the historicity of the Bible. A lot of apologists will point to this text and say all of these details in here, there's no way that Luke could have made up this story because he has so much realistic detail in there. Uh, Duke, uh, Luke describes this voyage, Duke, Luke describes this voyage with so much detail that he must have been there. As a matter of fact, Mediterranean sailors have commented that this passage has so much detail that Luke could not have made it up. So with all this, we circle back to our first point, and that is that God is in control. Well, how does this mean that God is in control? Well, God is in control over the actions of this event, so much so that he put Luke on that ship to record these details. And God is in control so much of history that he would preserve this text for us to have and to be able to look back on as the historicity or as a historical proof for the book of Acts and the Bible in general. So now we get to our application points. That seems like a lot of different places that we went to this morning. But in our application points, we want to know what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of making disciples or sorry, worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the first part is knowing, is to know that God is in control. He sets the events in our lives, or at least allows them to happen, so that he can be glorified. Second, to be, is to being comforted that God is in control. 
When we know that God is in control, it relieves us of the responsibility of controlling the things that we have no control over. And it allows us to be obedient to what he has already told us to do. And finally, well, that leads us to our final application point, is to do what God has already told us to do. God has given each and every single one of us a calling. Every single one of us have a calling from God. When we are obedient to that calling, it is the greatest form of worship that we can give back to him. Now, if you don't know what your calling from God is, if you don't know what God has called you to do, let me give you a hint. It's the Great Commission. God has called each and every single one of us to make disciples. We've gone through different disciple-making plans and strategies, and, and, and we've talked about different ways to do things in Sunday school. This whole sermon series has been about making disciples. So if you want more detail on that, we can meet and talk about it. But it starts with being obedient and taking that step toward making disciples. Now, as an illustration, Hannah was making fun of me yesterday because we went to Walmart, um, and I bought a, just, it's just this little sharpening stone. Um, it's not much, but you can see it's kind of two colors. Does anybody know why there's two colors on it? Right, there's two grits. The lighter side is a finer grit, and the other side is a coarser grit. And so we got home from Walmart, and I sat down, and I started sharpening my knife. Just sitting there. It only took a little bit of time, and I, wasn't, I didn't start with this knife. I started with my cheapest knife that I have, because I'm not very experienced with sharpening knives. And so I wanted a little bit of practice before I went to, well, this isn't an expensive knife, but before I went to one that I carry with me more. I didn't want to ruin that blade that I carry all the time. But this is a good illustration of what I'm talking about. If we can think of ourselves as the knife, we think of the storms of life as the sharpening stone. And who's the one in control? God is the one in control. And if you have somebody who is really experienced and knowledgeable about how to sharpen a knife, they can take a little cheap sharpening stone like this and take a, a, a little cheap knife like this and put an incredibly, incredibly sharp edge on it. But that process... That process is not easy for the knife because it actually scrapes against that steel and it pulls metal away from the steel. It doesn't just reshape the steel. It actually removes that metal from the steel. And so when God is taking us in our life and putting us through those storms, he's putting us up against that sharpening stone. He's removing the sin from our lives. And when we trust in God, when we have the trust over the knife sharpener, he can take us and, and mold us into a more mature Christian. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your wisdom. I thank you so much for your love. And God, we know that times when we're going through these storms, it's not easy. But God, I just pray that you will give us the obedience to trust you, that you will give us the courage to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. So I've come to our point of application, and you can respond where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.